0: So Jesus, we love you. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for how we've, how we've encountered you already this evening. Father, you're so good. We thank you that you've forgiven us, that you've made a way for us to live in victory and in freedom. And so tonight, Jesus, I pray that we would walk out in that. I thank you that you call us your kids. Jesus, we love you and praise you. In your precious name, amen. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 3. So if you want to flip there in your Bibles, 1 John chapter 3. And while you're doing that, um, I'm going to share a little bit of an experience of mine when I was growing up. I Maybe some of you can relate to this. But when I was growing up, I was a tomboy. I loved being outside. I loved building forts and riding bikes and playing football after school every day when I was in like grade 6, 7, and 8. And I loved it because I was actually stronger than the boys then, right? That's the one time in life where... Us girls tend to be stronger, and I'd tackle them, and I'd be like, yeah! And then two years later, they were all way taller than me, so I lived those glory days. But I was trying to figure out, am I part of the jocks? But then, like, I was athletic, but not the best, and so I didn't feel like I really fit there because there was another side of me that also liked to be... a girl and to dress in pretty things and such and, and yet I didn't feel like I fit with the really pretty girls because I I wasn't super into makeup either, so maybe I didn't fit there and and then I, I also really enjoyed playing piano and yet it was it was a learned skill. It wasn't my passion like some of the other musicians in the in my class or whatever. And and I also really liked be bossy and tell people what to do, so I thought, well, maybe the leadership enthusiasts, that's where I should fit, you know, and yet that still seemed too little for me to just fit, because it didn't encapsulate or capture the rest of me. You know, it was really confusing, trying to figure out, who am I, and where do I fit? And you know, this this journey, I don't think was just for me, I think probably all of us have gone through that journey and wondered, where do I fit, who am I? You know, and that's really accentuated in middle school students. That's what I've been seeing as I'm walking with them. They're trying to figure this out. Where do I fit? Who am I? And you know, we've been talking in, in youth group about our identity, and asking who, okay, so how do we get our identity? How do we know who we are? And there's this process that we tend to go through. And first, when we're young, we tend to look at things that we do or like, things that we like to wear, think, or feel, and the things that we're praised for, that we're good at. And we start to notice these things and then as we get a little bit older into middle school youth, we start to wonder, okay, now where do I fit? Based on what I like, do, think, feel, all of that stuff, where do I fit? And we start to look at the culture around us, the world, and we see different groups based on preferences, likes, dislikes, all of that such er, stuff, and so then we wonder, well, which group do I fit in? Because I want to fit somewhere. Who am I? Where do I fit? And so then when we finally find a group that maybe that's where I fit, we learn the script, we learn how they talk, how they think, how they act, how they dress. And then eventually, when we want to be a part of that script, we actually adopt it and live it out. We become that. You know, some psychologists say that this process is more more defining of our personality than even nature versus nurture debate. That's huge. And it's actually really scary when we think about our culture and how many groups are out there that are anti-Christ that do not act think feel think the way that Jesus would want us to. And so I've posed the question to our students, what if the group that you want to in, like develop into and get your identity from what if it's not Christ honoring? What do we do then? You know, it can get, we can get really scared and fearful sometimes in our culture and where we're going, and yet there's such good news. Because there's good news that there's an identity that actually captures all of this, and it doesn't matter about what we do, think, feel, think, all of that stuff. Rather, as Darren preached last week, our identity is in Jesus. It's not about who I'm affiliated with or what I do. My job is what I do or I like this. That's not who I am. I am a child of God. That is our identity. Our identity is found in Jesus Christ. And so in 1 John chapter 3, he gets into that and he says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. That is what we are. John is bringing, he's putting an emphasis to say, hey, look at the beautiful thing that God has done. Jesus came down and died on the cross for us. Why? Because he loved us. He lavished his love on us so that we could be called kids of God. But not just so that we'd be called that, but rather because it's the reality. That is who we are. We are children of god when we accept jesus he cleanses us and he makes us his kid that's amazing you know he keeps on going and he and he says dear friends now we are children of god and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is amazing you know, he's kind of painting this picture between the current reality. I'm a child of God fully, but I don't see it fully yet until Jesus returns and I see him face to face or I meet him in glory. And then I will be changed to be like him and we'll see the fulfillment of the fact that we are children of God. You know, it's so exciting this aspect. You know, and, and John, he, the reason he's writing this letter, there's two reasons, and the first one is found in this, and it's to encourage us, to, inf- to affirm the, the, the church at this time, to say, hey, this is your salvation. This is who you are, the assurance of your faith. They needed a bit of encouragement. This is who you are, your children of God. You know, This applies to us, too. And I've been hammering it into our kids that God loves you. Jesus loves you so much. And I've been telling our students, you know, God is love. That's what it says in chapter 4. He is the essence of love. Love comes from him. We don't know love apart from him, actually. He is love. And if he is love, he's probably the best lover. And if he's the best lover, maybe he has the best in store for us. And because he's good, the things that he puts in Scripture... Are for our good. Right. The boundaries that he puts in place are not to, to take away fun or enjoyment or life, but rather to let us live to the full. Amen. To help us thrive in this life. If you don't know Jesus tonight, he loves you. Desperately he loves you. He is the best lover. Can I encourage you, get to know him? He's amazing. You know, if we continue on um, in this reality, we, we keep seeing that we're children of God. We're children of God, right? And, and the question that I want to talk about tonight is this. What does it look like to be a child of God? So Darren preached that this is who we are last week, but now what does it look like to live that? What's our script that we adopt and live out now as children of God, as our identity, so in, chat, or in verse 3, it says, everyone who has this hope, so the hope that we will be with Jesus one day, we will be like him, that we are his children. So everyone who has this hope in him does what? They purify themselves just as he is pure. Purify themselves. You know, sometimes we can maybe get confusing because we're like, well, isn't God the only one who can actually cleanse me from my sin? But now John's saying that I'm supposed to pur- my, purify myself. Am I able to do that? And the question, or the answer is simply, well, yes. See, Jesus is the only one who can take away our sin. At the cross, when we accept him, we are sinless. When God looks at me, he does not see my sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. That's initial justification, just as if I'd never sinned. You know, and he gives us this initial sanctification, this holiness, this righteousness to be set apart. But then, as we walk out as children of God, there's this progressive sanctification where now I have a responsibility to partner with the Holy Spirit who's been given me, who lives in me and I need to partner with him to say like Jesus did, God not my will but yours be done and help me to walk out now in purity and holiness and righteousness, why? Because he is pure, he's holy, he's righteous. This is important, it's so critical. You know, in the Old Testament, God took the nation of Israel out from the nations and he says, you are my people and I want you to be holy because I'm holy and all of the nations will look and say, Yahweh is the one true God. In the same way, Jesus came and he saved us and as Christians, he calls us to be set apart, to be holy, to be righteous so that people would look and say, Jesus is the one true God. That same passage that be holy for I am holy in Leviticus is re- reiterated in First Peter 1. Guys, this is what it looks like to live out as a child of God. We are called to purify ourselves, to walk in holiness and righteousness. You know, the second reason that John wrote this letter um, was actually to refute heresy. And so the heresy that was going around was Gnosticism, and basically what Gnosticism taught was that instead of sin being evil, matter or the physical realm was evil, and the spiritual realm was good and holy. Now, this started to skew how they saw Jesus, and when we start to mess with who Jesus is and was, that leads to bad theology and that leads to bad living, And so what was happening here, because they saw, instead of sin being evil, they saw matter, our physical bodies, as evil. So then because of that, they started to live sinfully and immorally, and sin was rampant in the church. And so John writes them and says, Hey, no, you're children of God. This is who you are, so now purify yourselves and walk out in purity because we have a holy God. You know, we don't have the same heresy necessarily in our day and age but I think there's some false teaching that has crept in some false thinking that has crept into the church because of the culture or maybe because we don't know the Bible and I think we've had this massive pendulum swing to preaching that God is grace and love and yes Jesus is the most loving person and the most gracious person and I think maybe we've had to have this pendulum swing because maybe a couple generations ago or whatever, we've, we've preached this judgmental fire and brimstone type message and it got morality down, but it led to legalism and Pharisee living, which is not from the heart that God wants us to live. What would it look like to actually marry the two? To walk knowing that Jesus is good, he's loving, he's gracious, but he's also holy, pure, righteous, and still my judge. He requires us to walk out in holiness and righteousness. See, God's grace and love is not licensed for us to sin. It's actually supposed to lead us to repentance so that we can walk out in freedom and victory over sin. That is who we are. We are children of God. We have been given every blessing in the spiritual realm. In Ephesians, that's what it says. And so what Jesus has, we get to be a part of. And we can be victorious. We are victorious. Why not step into it? You know, he keeps on going. If we keep looking at this um, passage in, chapter, or in verse 4, it says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning, and no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. Once again, referring to her- heresy. Heresy. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. And he who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. Whoa. Kind of heavy, kinda hard hitting. And it almost feels like it, what he's saying is that when I accept Jesus and I sin, then I'm hooped and there's no more grace for me. That's what it almost sounds like, but that's not what John is getting at. Because if you read the full letter, you'll see in chapter one that he's he's talking to believers and he says, Hey, Our God, he is faithful and just, and if we confess our sins, he will cleanse us and purify us. He'll forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, in chapter 2, he goes on to say, My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You know a commentator put put it really well about this passage then. So and he and he says and I'm sorry that it's kind of hard to read but he says John is not suggesting that the child of god will not commit a single act of sin. Instead John is describing a way of life, a character, a prevailing lifestyle. Here are the present tense verb, which is the sinning aspect. It's in present tense, and that has to do with it's in process. It's happening right now. So here the present tense verb depicts continual sin, continual action. From John's earlier statements, it's obvious that the Christian, while enjoying a position or standing of sinlessness through the identification with Christ, will sin on occasion and will need to seek God's forgiveness. But what is also apparent from John's writings is that a genuine believer will not live in continual sin. See, what it looks like to walk out and to live as a child of God is that we are no longer defined by our sin, but rather we are defined as a child of God and we walk out in victory over sin. Habitual sin, a lifestyle of sin, has no part in the life of a child of God. So, so John encourages us, hey, purify yourselves. Walk in righteousness and holiness. Why would we want to go back? Jesus came to set us free. It's for freedom's sake that we have been set free. He came to destroy the devil's work in our lives. So are we living as children of God in holiness and righteousness? Are we walking that out? but maybe some of us don't know necessarily what's in scripture. We can say it really easy, we need to live in holiness and righteousness, but if we're not in this book, if we don't know what this says, it's very hard to do what he wants. It's hard to know if I'm walking in holiness and righteousness, if I'm not reading, if I'm not spending time with him. You know, recently with my students, we've been going through a relationship series because what I realize is that A lot of false teaching in that age, and actually I would say in the church in general, across the board, has to do with relationships, and specifically sexual sin. So in 1 Corinthians 6, we went through this list recently, and it starts out and says, The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Whoa. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. He continues on, and he he says the sexually immoral, so premarital sex would fall into that category. This should not be a part of our life as a child of God. That's not a part of our identity. That's not a part of our script. But we see it in the church. That would be living with our boyfriend or girlfriend, And I'm not here to point fingers. I'm not here to condemn. I'm here to warn as a brother or as a sister in Christ to say, hey, why don't we live as children of God in victory, in holiness and righteousness? Because God is holy and righteous. And the things that he sets out in here, you know, maybe it's hard. Maybe sometimes some of the things that are in here are really hard to accept, but I have to believe that God is actually good. You know, in our age of skepticism and doubt, we start to doubt if there's absolutes, if there's even truth. And if we doubt that there's truth or absolutes, then we start to doubt if God is even good. And if we don't believe that God is good and God is love, then we start to doubt what's in here is true and for our good. He doesn't say these things to take away life from us. He says them to protect us and to give us life life abundantly. Our God is good. He doesn't say this to condemn us, but rather to draw us to repentance, into righteousness, into holiness, because that's the best way. He continues on and he says, idolaters. So if any of us are elevating things above God, we live in an in a affluent culture, So a lot of times money or possessions or a job can get in the way. Sometimes even our kids, our family can get in the way of God's rightful place. How are we doing? Adulterers, extramarital sex, you know, infidelity, unfaithfulness. And I would say even in here, pornography would fall. And I have to say, if you're addicted, God wants to set you free, but you need to work on it too. Stop it because I see the fallout in our students and it's gotta stop. It's gotta be done. We have got to get over this because the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. We do not have to be slaves to sin because sin puts us in bondage and shame and guilt and that is not from God. This wrecks marriages. It wrecks families and I see the fallout in our kids. I work with them every week. We're called to holiness and righteousness as children of God. He says male prostitutes, which was associated with cult worship at that time. And the next one is homosexual offenders. And this is a really hot topic in our, in our day and age. And if I can pause here for a second... And just say, you know, if we look at the list so far, a lot of it has to do with sexual sin. And I want to say first, I think the church, we have so gotten on this rampage almost of saying, this is so evil. And yes, it's not God honoring. But you know what? It's no worse than heterosexual sin and couples living together. So why are we making such a big deal about homosexuality when we're not making a big deal about the guy who's addicted to pornography? It's all the same. Sin is sin is sin. Jesus had to die for it. It may have greater natural consequences if you keep reading in 1 Corinthians 6 because sexual sin has consequences. But maybe we need to change the conversation in the church because the reality is I don't wanna be ignorant. There's probably somebody in here who has that, that tendency, that attraction And I first want to say I'm sorry because it's probably been very hard walking into church because all you hear is judgment. When you know what, we're all sinners. But if we could start the conversation from the fact that God is good, God is love, and to say, hey, maybe let's wrestle through this together. Why would he say that we should not live this lifestyle? Let's wrestle through that together. Let's talk about it. You know, our students, those feelings start in middle school. And they feel so ostracized, so weird. And all they hear from the church is judgment. And they feel like there's no place here in the church, so they leave. What if we could actually talk about this? In a gracious way, but still in truth. Jesus came full of grace and truth. What would that look like? Jesus has the very best in store for us. And he calls us to righteousness and holiness. You know, it's interesting, because that is in the same list as thieves, as greedy people, pretty, pretty big in our culture, <laughs> drunkards, slanderers, which is gossip. And us women, we have our lips fly, our tongues fly, It's in the same list. But you know what? This does not define us. Our sin is not who we are when we accept Jesus. We become his children, and he gives us victory over these things. You know, as you continue to read, he says, um, Paul says, that is what some of you were. He says to the church, you were living this way. That's who you were, but you no longer are that, because you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. We are no longer defined by our sin, instead we are victors over our sin because we are children of God. So let us live that way, let's step into victory. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to be victorious. The one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. We have power, so let's walk in it. What does it look like to be a child of God? It's to be purifying ourselves. When we mess up, say, God, I'm sorry, and keep going. Maybe some of us need to repent tonight. Maybe some of us need to turn from the way that we're living to actually walk as children of God, to purify ourselves and walk in holiness. So that's the first part of our script, our identity, how we're supposed to live this out. But the second part, he continues on, and he says that we are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to love one another. If we keep reading um, in verse 10, it says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We should love one another. You know, um, the message that we heard from the beginning, again, he's talking about, hey, remember the gospel, the good news that Jesus came, died, and rose again all because he loved you. And if you read um, in the Gospel of John, and so the references have to do with the Gospel of John, he says this over and over again in the Last Supper because maybe we forget very easily that it's hard to love one another. But he says, hey, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Well, what's his teaching? What's his command? He says over and over again, this is my command. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. He says that we're called to love one another. And by our love, everyone will know that we are his followers, his disciples. Love is a really big deal to God. Love within the church. You know, sometimes we think, well, isn't that a given? Shouldn't believers love each other? Well, if you think about a biological family, I'm sure you didn't always get along with your siblings or like them. In the same way, it's the family of God. Sometimes we don't like each other or get along with each other. We're still called to love one another, though. As in a biological family, we don't get to choose who's in our family. We don't get to choose who's in the family of God. But we're called to love them. Love is a big deal to God. See, the second, second reason, uh, or John is appealing to the church to walk in their identity as children of God who love Love one another. You know, the example given, if you keep reading, it's about Cain killing Abel. So brothers, biological brothers, and one killed the other. And John says, hey, that's not supposed to be. And it starts when we hate. We're called to love one another, though. And in verse 16, he gives us the the ultimate example, and he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to also lay down our lives for our brothers. And he carries on, and he says, maybe you need some practical daily doses of how that looks. And he says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. We're called to love one another. And yes, if anybody is in, in, in need, as, um, as a brother or sister in, in Christ, we're called to meet those needs. And we read that Jesus sacrificed his life. It was sacrificial love. That's how we're supposed to love one another. You know, a couple weeks ago... Um, We had a church envisioning meeting, and when Pastor Paul gets back, we will actually get those results out to you. But we had a very interesting conversation. We were comparing our church to a description of the New Testament church just to see how we were doing. Is there anything that we need to get better at? And something that became blatantly obvious is that we're pretty weak at evangelism. You know, it's happening, but it's not defining of us. We're not necessarily outside of these walls. You know, and I, but a comment came up in that conversation. And somebody said, Amy, I think before we, we get all outside the doors and evangelizing Red Deer, we better make sure that we reach every kid in this church. And I say amen to that. Every student, every child needs to know Jesus. And yes, partially, this is a responsibility of a parent to teach their kids about Jesus and to love the church because Jesus died for the church. It's not an event. It's not a building. It's us, the people. And God died for us. We need to teach our kids that, to love the church. But we've also said multiple times that it actually takes a community to raise a child. It takes all of us. It's all of our responsibility. And you know, if we're not loving here, why would anybody want to join our church? Why would anybody want to come? Evangelism starts by us loving one another. And specifically, if I can push us a little bit more, um, I think love is a little bit more than just meeting physical needs. You know, I was talking to one of my friends recently and, and he was going, him and his wife were going to a, a parenting class and what, they, what he was sharing was that my toddler sees love or spells love, if she could spell it, as T-I-M-E. You know, I think even more valuable than any physical possession is our time. Especially in a very busy and distracted culture, our time is so valuable. Jesus loved us sacrificially though. And he calls us to love one another sacrificially. What would it look like to give up our time for one another? You know, if, if I think about love and how it's described in 1 Corinthians 13, what I can see is that it requires us to be spending time together and rubbing shoulders with one another. Because it's super easy to be patient when nobody's around, but all of a sudden you got kids running around and it's like, ah, right? Um, so in 1 Corinthians, when it says love is patient, Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. It requires us to be around one another. If we're going to love one another, we need to be around one another and maybe sacrificially give up time. But if I can push us, um, there's multiple ways as to how we can love our brothers and sisters in the church. But as a youth pastor, I want to push us in one particular area, and that's regarding our kids, regarding our our students, and how are we loving them sacrificially? Because I'm sick of watching kids graduate and leave the church because they don't feel loved here. They don't feel like they have a part here. They don't have a place here. I say enough. I want to see every student, every kid who is in this church know Jesus and love Jesus and walk with him and get committed to a church church. This is what I long for. So first, I wanna, I wanna address uh, you parents. I'm not a parent. I don't have kids, so I don't fully understand, and I will never love your kids as much as you love your kids. But I can say that I do love them. and I have a deep desire for them to walk with Jesus and to know him and to know his goodness and his love. I long for that. And as a youth pastor, the longer that I'm here and watching different things, the longer I'm seeing some of our thinking and philosophy that actually leads to students leaving the church afterwards. And this is what I see. One thing is that if students don't have friends by the time they're in grade five or six, we most likely won't have them after high school. Now, obviously, God needs to speak to them, and they need to make that decision, but are we doing everything possible in our ability to love our kids so that we see every kid in church for the rest of their lives? What would that look like? You know, I've watched way too many kids drop off the map, like I say, after high school, after grad, and I think there's two reasons specifically. And the first is that we've maybe elevated the nuclear family over the family of God. Jesus actually elevated the family of God over the nuclear family. Read it in Mark chapter 3. And if you think about church history or Christianity, who are the two most influential people in our history? Obviously Jesus and the Apostle Paul. They were both single, both without kids. And yet, Jesus calls us his kids, his followers, and Paul called all of the people that he led to Christ his kids. You know, it's pretty interesting. Maybe the family of God needs to be elevated above the nuclear family. What would that look like? What would it look like if the, if the church wasn't just an option or an event or a building, but actually a family that we're committed to and responsible to? What would that look like? Because what I see right now is that many times extracurricular take precedence. Sometimes we let Christian schools become the answer. And sometimes we allow, we come here as, as a family to church, but then we go elsewhere for, for kids programs or youth groups or whatever. I'm not saying these things are bad or evil or wrong, but I see fallout of it. Because if they're not making friends here in a local church, in a family, we don't see them after high school. That's kind of a big deal. You know, I'm not saying that it's necessarily wrong and I believe that every one of you love your kids dearly and are trying to make the best decisions for your kids. But as a youth pastor, this is just what I'm seeing. So I'm just sharing it. You guys can think about it. Mull it over. But we know that in the future, the church is the lifeline for all of us, for adults. We don't have kids' programs for 35-year-olds. Church is kind of it. It's the family. You know, even at baby dedications, we, we challenge the parents and ask them to commit to giving every benefit to their children of the church. Every benefit of the church to their kids. That would mean that their kids are involved in serving and know that they have a place. And even further than that, once they get into high school, typically, I don't know why this happens, but typically your kids will tune you out. They won't want to listen to you. I I did the exact same thing to my parents. It's an anomaly if you have a kid who still listens to you in high school, I think. But what would it look like if your kids were in a committed or in a community where the same things that you're trying to say are being talked about and being taught and they were actually hearing and listening because just for the simple fact that it wasn't coming from your mouth? What would it look like? And so you parents, you can totally disagree with me. And I'd love to go in a dialogue with you. It's hard sometimes speaking because I don't get to get your questions and that kind of thing. But what would it look like? And for those of you who have wayward kids, do not find this condemning at all. I pray that there is no condemnation because that is from from the enemy. And you know what? If you're praying your kids, he hears your prayers. If you're praying to bring your kids back into church, you know what, God hears, and God can work. But what would it look like if we actually elevated the family of God over our nuclear families as parents? You parents can mull on that stuff. And if you have questions, you can definitely t- chat with me. I'd be, I'd be more than happy to talk with you. These are just things that I'm seeing as I've been working with students now for like five years. And it breaks my heart every time I see a student leave the church. But if I can just briefly talk to all of us now. What's our responsibility? Our responsibility as children of God is to love our brothers and sisters, and tonight I'm specifically talking about our kids. Maybe we haven't been functioning as a family. Maybe we haven't been caring about our kids. To make church actually fun so that every kid who comes can't wait for Sunday, can't wait to go to Sunday school and get involved and see their friends and see their teachers. And even more than fun, what if we loved uh, sacrificially with our time the kids in this church so that they not only were looking forward to fun, but that they knew that they were loved here, that they had a place here, that they belonged here, that they were cared for. This is all of our responsibility, to love our kids in this place, to show them love. What would it look like if people committed not just to teaching Sunday school once a month, but actually committed every week to getting to know and love a group of kids that they can walk with and then they can share the gospel with? You know, I did that. In grade eleven, I woke up early every Sunday to go teach a group of rowdy five grade five year or grade fivers, and it was crazy. But I really learned to love them, and some of them turned into amazing young people. What would it look like? What if all of us? Um, what if we had people who were committed to praying? And I know that we do have people that are praying. But what if? We, were, we knew the names of the students so that when we saw them on a Sunday morning, we could say, hey, I was thinking about you this past week and praying for your exam. How did it go? Or you had a soccer game yesterday. How did it go? I was thinking about you and praying for you. What would it look like? What would it look like if we had more leaders on Tuesday or Wednesday night pouring into our students and walking through this super confusing time of teenage years? What would it look like if they knew that it was a safe place to actually talk about life, faith, and sex rather than going to the world and getting their answers? What would it look like? You know, what would it look like if we had a church that was full of love and that our kids weren't turned off by hypocrisy or fighting or anything like that, but actually saw the fruit and the benefit of of doing it God's way and said, I want to do it God's way because I see the fruit. What would it look like if we were examples to our students and they they saw what a script, what a life lived for Jesus looked like and they wanted to adopt it and live it out? You know, I fully believe that I think we'd have students who would know the truth who would know that they're dearly loved, that they are children of God, and that they know who they are in Christ, and they go into their schools with that confidence and bring their friends to Jesus because nobody else has hope like we have it. Nobody has love like we have it because we have Jesus. So what can you do? How can you love our kids sacrificially? Maybe mentor one of our students. Maybe go talk to Darren and say, Darren, I want to I wanna pour into kids this year. I'll give you a year. I'll try it out. What would it look like? Maybe, Maybe come talk to me and be a youth leader on Tuesday night or Wednesday night. Get to know our awesome students that we have. I don't know. Give a high five. If you see a young person, just go and say, hey, I just want to get to know you. What's your name? I'll be praying for you this week. What would it look like? You know, what if we actually lived out our identity as children of God in purity, holiness, and righteousness and actually loved our brothers and sisters, the family of God, sacrificially with our time? I firmly believe that we would change the world. If you guys want to stand, we're going to close. And if the worship or Jake wants to come up. And I really hope and pray. I've been praying, God, I don't, want to, I don't want this to be condemning. So if you feel any condemnation, cast it off in Jesus' name because that's not from Christ. That is from the enemy. But if you feel conviction, maybe you need to act on it. Maybe you need to repent. Walk out in freedom as a child of God.